This is Novak Now. I am Jake Novak. Very special program today as this is the program that we always take a look at the top stories, especially for the Jewish world and the world in Israel. And as I said, it's a special show today because I am coming to you from the Ramdam Matifta School in Lawrence in the five towns in New York. And I am sitting with Somebody who, if anyone wanted to know, where did Jake Novak get his Zionism education? Where did he get the facts? Where did he start to get the tools? I'm sitting right now closely next to really my first Zionism teacher. And yes, like most Jewish day school students, uh, I had already been to Israel by the time I went to high school. I was coming from an observant home, all that stuff. But as I learned very quickly, none of that means that you actually are educated properly in Zionism. Uh, And that is something that even now almost 40 years after I entered high school, at least about 35 years after I entered high school, is still a problem, not just for secular Jews and disaffected Jews, but also for Jews who are in the community, in religious communities. And that, of course, has really been very much, I think I could say, the life's work of my guest, Rabbi Yotav Eliyahu. That's who I'm sitting next to. Rabbi Yotav Eliyahu, who was my teacher at the Yeshiva of Flatbush, who also pioneered, in my opinion, really the, the true pioneer of modern Zionism, secular education that can be used in religious schools as well, uh, in the United States. And of course, today is a very special day for Rabbi Eliyahu because today is the official launch date of his book, a long time in coming and quite needed in the community, the book Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel, the 4,000-year religious, ideological, and historical story of the Jewish nation. Again, launches today. Don't feel guilty if you haven't bought it yet. Today's the first day you can buy it, and we hope you will. And of course, tonight there is here in Rambam a special book launch party. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Of course, in true Yekka German Jewish fashion, I'm here about six or seven hours early, but that's uh, the way it goes. I want to welcome Rabbi Eliak to the program. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations, Mazel Tov, on the completion of your book. Thank you very much. I appreciate your kind words. Well, again, what we're talking about, it's its amazing. I, I, I launched this program, Novak Now, on the Nachum Siegel Network to be as topical as possible, not to just talk about evergreen-type issues. And boy, has Zionism been a very topical issue, top of the news, not just for the Jewish world, but for the entire world, the last few weeks of the program. Of course, the the premier program was about the 70th anniversary of the State of Israel. And now, of course, we have the secular anniversary coming up a week from today. And the big news that the U.S. Embassy is now officially moving to Jerusalem. In fact, I just heard a radio report that the road signs have gone up in Jerusalem for uh, changing the name of the consulate to you know, turn here for the U.S. Embassy. So that's an exciting time. Um, has this been, listen, it's never a dull moment in Zionism, in, in, in the story of the state of Israel, but from somebody who's really looked at it and is in it every single day, like you are, Rabbi Eliyahu, this has been an extraordinary year, wouldn't you say? Yes. Um, I think that the decision taken by the administration of Donald Trump has been a long time coming. I remember lobbying for AIPAC in the mid-90s when Congress finally did pass that law. And every year we were waiting to see if that law would be implemented. But finally, for reasons that have to do with political and other other factors, I guess. But at the end of the day, a decision that's been in long time in common has finally take, taken place. Also, I think the other big headline in the enduring part of the year, and I think these are not unrelated. The capital decision is not unrelated to the other issue that has really percolated over the last year. That one that I started to notice very early on, and now it seems like the rest of the news media is sort of waking up to it, is the big changes in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, we don't want to be too optimistic. We don't want to be gullible. We've known about changes that happen from time to time. But there is no denying that there has been a sea change in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, it could change. But what we've seen in the past year from the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has been significant. 
Is that something that is that the way you see it as well? Um, from my perspective, I think there are two reasons that the Saudis and the other Gulf states are warming up to Israel. I think uh, the Shiite-Sunni war, which has been growing, and for some reason the Western media has not really picked up on it, it's becoming an epic war. Uh, the battleground right now has been Iraq and Syria in particular, but it's really Shiite versus Sunni. And the Sunni powers realizes that Iran's threat is not just aimed at Israel, it's aimed also at the Sunni state, certainly those that are closest to it. So number one, there is the concept of my enemy's enemy is my friend, which I believe is originally an Arabian province, <laughs> a, a proverb rather. Number two, I think uh, the prince understands that in his own kingdom, uh, he has a choice. He wants to continue in the path of his forefathers. There will be an uprising there as well. It'll be ugly and it will not be easy to put down. So I think he's working to try to preempt that from happening. Uh, a bunch of reforms. I don't think he's become a Zionist. I think he's a very pragmatic young man who understands that it's in Saudi Arabia's best interest, both domestically and foreign policy-wise, to begin to align itself with the state of Israel. You're listening to Novak Now. You're, we're talking to Rabbi Yotav Eliach, author of the book now just available today, launching today, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel. And on a side note, but a very important side note, Rabbi Eliach was my first Zionism teacher. He coordinated and put together really the first Zionism curriculum that could be taught in religious and non-religious schools back at when he was teaching at the yeshiva of Flatbush. And it was an eye-opener even for somebody like me who had been to Israel, who came from an observant home, all of that. And of course, that really dovetails to the, the, the crux, I think, of what I have seen is the, the most important life work that you've done, not only as a teacher, but also as the creator of, and, and, and longtime coordinator of the Write On for Israel program, which is the need for all Jewish levels of education, whether it's a school, a synagogue, and also for, you know, not just for children, obviously for adults, a sisterhood, a men's club, to be more uh, fluent in the facts and history of Zionism. And that was, that's really your life's work. And can you tell us a little bit about what the successes and frustrations are that you face trying to get Zionism more ingrained in Jewish education in America? I just want to make one correction. I wasn't the founder oh. of Right On for <laughs> Israel. Uh, uh, um, um, that was uh, Gary Rosenblatt from yes. Jewish Week. And he gets the credit for that, but I was brought on early, as was Linda Scherzer. Uh, my perspective, I think, let me start with the positive and then get to my frustration second. Sure. I think uh, Zionism really is, is a modern term, but it depicts something ancient. The crux of my book, I think what makes it unique and different, is I do not believe that there's such a thing as a modern Zionism. What there is is, is just Judaism. And if one is familiar with both the written Torah and the oral law, the Talmud, etc. It's very clear that Judaism is a way of life based on the teachings of the Torah that are connected on two levels. There is the individual level, but more significantly, more important, there is the national level of Judaism. Judaism as it ought to be, what it was meant to be, is a nation state operating in its own land under the constitution of Jewish law, which means the Torah talks about as does the Rambam, as based on Shas, it talks about a king, a government, an army, a court system, uh, a, a Beit Midrash, uh, a, a military, uh, social welfare, taxes, etc. Judaism was meant to be implemented as a national way of life, the difference being constitution being written by the Almighty, etc. Now, for 14 centuries, more or less, that's how Judaism functioned. Uh, with all the mistakes that were made, and the Tanakh is replete with them, 
But at the end of the day, sovereignty, semi-sovereignty, from around the time of uh, 1273 BCE, when Joshua entered the land of Israel, until 70 CE, when the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, the Jews had either approximately eight centuries of full independence and five centuries of autonomy. And then we entered a new phase. And that new phase was diaspora, which is an unnatural phase. In that phase, we wrote another Zionist book. It's called the Sidur. And all the Sidur talks about is can we return to the land of Israel? When we will return to the land of Israel? And that's our aspiration. Our holidays are based on that. Our life cycles are based on that. So I just tried to tell the story from its correct origin. What's happened the last two centuries is the continuation of an ancient story. You know, I think one of the things that all, everyone really may, may not be fluent enough about when it comes to Jewish history and Zionist history. First of all, there was never a time when there wasn't some Jewish community in the land of Israel. Sometimes it was, it was very small, but that's one of the first things, by the way, they show you. And, and I know that that's been a major project of the Diaspora Museum in Israel and the Israel Museum of trying to get as many artifacts as possible, even from small Jewish communities over the centuries. So that's one thing. So this idea that, you know, the Jews are some kind of kind of colonists coming back and had no connection other than a ma many thousands of years, thousands of years before is not true. But another thing is that the idea that Judaism and nationalism absolutely work together just because there isn't a similar worship of government leaders or of our kings. I mean, if you really pay attention in the Talmud, the, the rabbis aren't so I, I, I about the kings, but they're not against the idea of a municipal government. They're not, that, that's, you know, it's an important, important um, difference. So what, again, is there something in, in the Jewish religious tradition of the, of the diaspora that has clouded out these facts, again, not by any conspiracy or plot, but just by the, the facts of history sort of rolling the way they have that you think has made it a little bit harder for everyone to d dive as deeply as they should have been, at least for the last 70 years, into Zionism education? I think... Uh, one of the disasters that we think about on Tisha B'Av is, A, there's the national disaster of the destruction of Jewish sovereignty, the destruction of the two temples, and the Jews going into diaspora, which by definition, as time went on, there was a dichotomy. On one hand, what saved us was by keeping the parts of Jewish law that we could, which were those that were not officially connected to the running of the state, though we learned all those laws and we kept Israel in our minds. But the other side of the coin was that Judaism mutated. And slowly but surely, century after century, to many Jews, the reality was that Judaism stopped being a national way of life and became a religious way of life. And the idea of the national way of life, which you cannot deny, makes up more than half of the 613 commandments, that makes up more than 75% of what the Talmud is talking about, whether it's connected to the temple, whether it's connected to Jerusalem, whether it's connected to having a Supreme Court Sanhedrin system, etc., became the default reality. And then when it became very difficult to, to actually understand or feel that the beginning of the redemption is going to be by natural means, eventually the final redemption will be by supernatural means. But I think, I don't know if it was a, it was certainly not plotted I think it's one of the mutations that took place throughout centuries of diaspora. Again, we're talking with Rabbi Yotav Eliach. On the day that his book launches, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel, I'm Jake Novak, and this is Novak Now. I want to talk to you about some of the, I would say these are like the three biggest questions I get very often, and I'm sure you hear them all the time. So I'll start with the first one. This is a more internal Jewish community question. Get this question all the time. And that is the question of Hasbara, the idea of, you know, 
roughly translated, I'd say public relations. So many people ask me, why does Israel have problems? These are real strong supporters of Israel. Why does Israel, and, they, and when they say Israel, I assume they mean the government. Why does Israel have so much problem with, with public relations? Why don't they get out there and do a better job convincing the world that they're a good country, et cetera, et cetera? And my answer to them has always been that really Hasbara is our job. It's not the job of a government. No matter how great a government is at doing it, it's, it's very much kind of a, sort of like an inside job. It's sort of like the company telling you their product is good. It's not really the way, to, the way it goes. It has to be sort of more of a word of mouth. But I wonder, Rabbi Elech, what your thoughts are on the Hasbara question, on the public relations question, or is it just the fact that many of us are unwittingly sort of customers of an anti-Israel news media or an anti-Israel message out there, and we don't really realize it, and, and we're almost succumbing to it ourselves? Well, there are a lot of parts to the answer, and I think you've hit on a few of them. Uh, what I'd like to do is add to what you've said. I think... I think one of the big changes that's happened in history is that the United Nations, which was supposed to be an organization that really was supposed to be a forum for countries to discuss the realities ethically, morally, historically of their situations, and then to find ethical, moral, proper uh, solutions. Unfortunately, very quickly, already in the 1950s, the United Nations became a forum, a political platform for blocks of nations. First, it was the communist then the non-aligned, and then the Islamic countries, and it had nothing to do with the realities of the world. In theory, the UN was founded to stop genocide and, and to stop Nazism, etc. Look at the amount of wars and genocides that have occurred between 1945 and 2018. The UN has done absolutely nothing of value. There's the famous story in Rwanda where the UN peacekeepers were just standing around as the slaughter was taking place. So that has been a very big blow, not just to Israeli Hasbara, but Israel has suffered greatly. It started in the 1975 United Nations vote that Zionism is racism. At the time, Daniel Patrick Moynihan got up and said, in this body right now, the way it's constituted, besides the fact that it's, it's decayed morally and it's the end of what it stood for, he said they could probably pass a resolution that the earth is flat. And then he quoted who would vote for it. He said the communist countries would vote for it, the non-aligned countries would vote for it. Most of the Muslim would, would vote for it. And that would be a UN rule that the world is flat. So I think Israel has suffered from that greatly. And then number two, I think, there has been a very big change in the intellectual view of history and of the world in post-World War II. And that's something, all of these things I mentioned in the book, the, the very leftist view that nationalism is bad because nationalism leads by definition to, to Nazism, fascism, or totalitarianism, or, mil, uh, or a military-style dictatorship like Japan, they've gone to the extreme, and what we see the fruits of that is, is the European Union. No nationalism, no boundaries, no national pride, no military. And I don't think many people believe the EU or European countries have that many more years or decades to last. They look at Israel, and it befuddles them. It's a country with Western values. It's a first world country economically. Its citizens are happy. There's an index. It's number 11 in the world. And that includes Israeli Arabs as well. And yet, it's a very proud country nationalistically. And it has a military. Everybody's drafted to it. So the people who come from that world pretty much have adopted the philosophy of that nationalism is bad. Then they've adopted, when it comes to the Middle East, the works of Edward Said, Orientalism, which has already educated almost two generations of people in colleges, and it's leaking down 
to high schools. Who do those people grow up to be? Many of them grow up to be people who work in the media. As you know, Jake, most people in the media's bent is not to the right, it's to the left. It's self-selecting. Like in the military, most people who make the military have a bent to the right. Now you add the UN view and you, you add the way it's, you know, colleges view the Middle East, nationalism, et cetera, and Israel has been getting an exceptionally raw deal for about 40 years right now. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a great way to summarize what you just said, Rabbi Eliyach, is Israel's playing a road game. I mean, they really are on the road against the political establishment, the United Nations being the best example, the media establishment, and the educational establishment. So that's why I want to get to some of the things that your book offers. Again, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel by Rabbi Yotav Eliach, launching today, available today on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, make sure that you buy it today because today's the first, you don't have to feel badly. You, you feel bad about it. This is the first day that you could, could have bought it. Um, but Rabbi Eliach, I think the question I want to ask is, you know, again, I think we were in agreement that there's a lot we need to do to equip the people who are supporting Israel with what they need to to defend the land, defend and also promote the land of Israel. What can they get from this book that they may not be able to get elsewhere as far as that's concerned? I think what I've tried to do is I've I've taken different narratives and put them all in one book. If you really read books about religious Zionism, and sadly, there are not a lot of them available outside of Israel. And then you read books about Zionism that only start, let's say, in the days of Herzl. And then you read books trying to explain Israel's predicament, dealing with terrorist groups that uh, hide among civilians. I put this all in one book. Uh, I, I put the, the Jewish Zionist narrative. It breaks down. It's very simple. This tells the story that there's such a thing as a Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation has been around for four years, 4,000 years. And the Jewish nation for 14 centuries lived in their own land, either as sovereigns or as semi-sovereigns. We were the majority of the population for 1,900 years. We are a nation with a common language, a common culture, and a common land of origin. And we have always been there. And we have pulled off something that no other nation ever has, be kicked out of your land, and then return in large numbers to reestablish sovereignty in a place that no other group ever established sovereignty. The land of Israel was, for the 2,000 years the Jews did not rule, was part of someone's larger empire. All of that information is in you. It, it takes our narrative. And I'll tell you something that I don't know if everybody else believes. I'm not interested in changing everybody's mind. I've learned something important over the last 40 years of my life. And I'll give you a sports analogy. At the end of the day, I am a big sports fan. But I don't believe when I watch a baseball game or a football game or a Super Bowl that if I wear a jersey that's stinky or if I wear my cap backwards, that's what's going to affect the people on the field. In football, it's 22 men. In baseball, it's 18 men. In basketball, it's 10 men. It's about being on the field and changing history. And the fact is, most of the world likes to watch. They're not going to affect history. Those who get on the field will affect history. The reason the state of Israel is powerful and exists, thank God, because there are six and a half million Jews, the overwhelming majority of which believe in the mission, believe in the, the fact that there, there's Jewish nationalism, believe in the state, believe in our history, believe in our religious roots, and they're living a life there. Whether they're involved in technology or religion or the military or the government, they're about trying to make Israel the best that it can be. I want people to help write the next pages of history, be they Jew or Gentile. There are many Christians in this country that support Israel as well. If this can inspire people now to be part of the story, you will now speak. You will now plant the tree. You will now volunteer. You will now lobby for Israel. You will now donate. You will change the balance 
of reality. I don't care what I have a lot of opinions about a lot of events in the world. I don't think my opinions mean a hoot. Okay, it's what I do that makes a difference. And I'm hoping that this book will inspire enough people to to, to get on the field and play. Rabbi, uh, again, I want to ask you, considering the, the nature of, of probably the majority of this audience being a little bit more observant, being a little bit more fluent in some of the in Jewish life. I wonder if the full story of the religious Jewish community's contributions to the modern state of Israel are well known even among the religious Jewish community in the diaspora. And by that, I mean the contributions that have really become evident just in the last 30 years, especially. Um, we have learned, for example, the kippah wearing modern Orthodox, as I say in Israel, this rugim have absolutely reinvigorated the Israeli Defense Forces, especially in the officer corps, for one example. The economic contribution that Orthodox Jews have brought to the land of Israel. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is really not just to, to wave the flag for Orthodox Judaism, but is to remind Orthodox Jews in the diaspora, especially in the United States, that Israel is no longer this country where, yeah, a lot of religious Jews live, but the society, the military, and the economy are dominated by non-religious, non-affiliated non Jews whom they may not feel such a connection to. That really isn't the story anymore. And I was wondering if you could advance that, that, that fact a little bit further. Before I advance, I'm going to take it backwards. Yeah. One of the points that Orthodox Jews need to understand, and it fits in with the whole narrative, that Moshe Rabbeinu was a Zionist, and before him Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and so was Yoshua, and David, and all the Nevi'im, etc. And so was uh, Yehuda Maccabee, and Matityahu, etc., and Rabbi Akiva, and Bar Kokhba. The fact is this, if you study the history, the evolution of thought that led to, now is the time to return, is from two Orthodox rabbis. One is Rabbi Yehuda Alkali, a Sephardic rabbi who began to write articles about returning to the land of Israel in the 1820s. 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s. He began to speak about Aliyah and mass numbers. He began to speak about reading, speaking Hebrew. He began to speak about having a Jewish Congress. Then came another uh, rabbi, Ashkenazic rabbi, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, who wrote in the 1860s, speaking specifically about that, that religiosity means we have to help bring the Mashiach. The Mashiach is, needs our help. We have to, he basically said, we've been praying for 2,000 years to build a house. We want a house. We, want, we wake up one morning and there's Home Depot across the street. That's God's answer. And he wrote an article in 1863. So the two first Zionist thinkers in the last 200 years, which means the last 1,800 years, were religious rabbis. Then the founder of Chovev Zion was Rabbi Moliver, the one who founded the group that got on boats that got to the land of Israel, were religious as well. Bilu, the actual ones who went, Beit Yaakov, Luchuven Elcha, their manifesto quotes Hillel and ends with Shema Yisrael Hashem So it's not a new thing. The, the, the crust of the pie of the modern Zionist movement is religious. Read the Israeli Declaration of Independence. It starts with our right from the days of the Tanakh to be in this land. There's been a Rabbanut since 1949, because even people like Ben Green understood there has to be a Rabbanut. What's happened the last few decades is that the flag of the secular Zionists, which used to be the kibbutz movement, of follow me, has been a baton hand, a handoff. And the handoff has been to the religious Zionist movement. With all mistakes every movement makes, it's clear in the Israeli public that the religious Zionist movement, both in their spirit of pioneering, what was done in the Galil is now being done in Judea and Samaria and other places. And in the military, it's not a secret that 
40 to 50% of all combat officers in the IDF wear a kippah. And 30% of all officers in the IDF wear a kippah. It's understood. And you're not smart. Where are you going to feel it most? In religious Zionist communities throughout the country. So, yes, it, it, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not a new phenomenon. If you're in Israel in wartime, which I've been a few times, the radio keeps saying, more seem today, more seem today, rockets didn't last. Part Israeli culture, with all its flaws, is the most Jewish culture on the planet. My secular Israeli cousins know more about Judaism than I would say 90% of American Jews do. So it's not just one segment. It's a whole, it's a whole culture and religious sense uh, that exists. Obviously, we could go on for a really longer time with Rabbi Yotav Eliach, but this is the end of this episode or edition of, of Novak Now with Jake Novak. Again, tonight, the book launch at the Rambam Matifta at 7 o'clock. 7.30. 7.30 here goes, in Lawrence. And it goes live on Amazon at 12. And at 12 at noon today, which is right now, uh, the Judaism Zionism in the Land of Israel goes live on Amazon. Please buy your copy. This is Jake Novak. My guest is in Rabbi Yotav Eliach. We'll speak to you again next week.